Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, my name's Eric. I'll be reading you selections from today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Monday, October 2nd of 2023. We'll start with the weather as we always do. Fog in the morning, otherwise mostly sunny today across the Cape and Highlands. High of 69 expected this afternoon. Pretty day. Partly cloudy tonight. Patchy late night fog, possible, with a low of 53. Tomorrow, Tuesday, fog in the a.m. again. Otherwise mostly sunny again, just like today. Beautiful day. High of 73, low of 60 in the overnight. Wednesday, pretty much the same thing. Very nice week ahead of us. Partly sunny and comfortable, low 70s, high 50s in the overnight for Wednesday and Thursday. Intervals of clouds and sunshine on Thursday and a shower in the morning on Friday, otherwise just cloudy. So a lovely week ahead of us, uh, dry, a little foggy in the morning maybe, but basically sunny and comfortable. So enjoy that. The sunrise today was at 6.39 a.m. It will set at 6.22 p.m. We'll have 11 hours and 43 minutes of daylight. My dog is clearly complaining that it's not light enough during these long, <laughs> these long dark days. <laughs> Apologies for that. I have a puppy and he likes to be noticed. Now, moving to the front of the paper where the lottery results are kept, and of course the news, um, and we read the lottery results because somebody asked for them. If there's something you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org or call us at 508-539-2030. That's 508-539-2030, and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss anything that we read, any of the information that we share, you can always go to Audible Local Ledgers, ledger.org, and in the upper right corner is the Archived Readings tab. If you click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspaper readings that you can catch up on, as well as a wide variety of periodicals and literature for your listening pleasure. And all of that is free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org, the Archived Readings tab. For the latest results, we go to of the lottery. We go to MassLottery.com because the Cape Cod Times goes to press too early to be able to give us the latest results. And since you asked for them, you certainly deserve the latest results. So for the numbers game of Sunday, October 1st, in the midday drawing, the numbers were 8, 9, 1, 4. The midday drawing yesterday of the numbers game, 8, 9, 1, 4. In the evening drawing last night in the numbers game for Sunday, October 1st, the numbers were 0, 3, 6, 7. Again, 0, 3, 6, 7. For Mass Cash for Sunday, October 1st, 1, 2, 5, 16, and 34. And Lucky for Life rounds out our results for Sunday, October 1st, 11, 13, 24, 29, and 47, with three the bonus number. And that concludes our lottery results. Good luck to all who play, and remember us if you win. Now, back to the cover of today's Cape Cod Times. And the headline, we keep it local here, 
is sea change. Study says warming ocean to alter iconic fish habitat and fisher strategy by Heather McCarran. Black tip and spinner sharks, blue marlin, even manatees. All of these marine animals, typically associated with points farther south, have been showing up off the coast of New England, where the waters are among the fastest warming on Earth. More than just rare curiosities, they are the harbingers of shifting marine ecosystems. Troubling indicators, scientists say, of something they've been warning about for decades. Climate change influenced by human activities. Now a new study from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in collaboration with San Diego State University and National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Fisheries with contributions from six other U.S. institutions is another testament. The research was recently published by Science Advances, which is a journal of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The study, which looked at 12 species of highly migratory fish predators, including sharks, tuna, marlin, and swordfish, found that by 2100, most of them will experience widespread losses of suitable habitat and redistribution from current habitats as the result of sea surface temperatures predicted to increase as much as 10 degrees Fahrenheit. The Northwest Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico, among the fastest warming ocean regions, are highlighted as hotspot areas for multi-species habitat loss over the next 77 years. Cameron Braun, an assistant scientist and marine ecologist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution who led the study, said the multidisciplinary research was undertaken to get a better understanding not only of shifts that are already happening, but also of where it's all heading. We know that climate change is and will continue to impact ocean ecosystems, but we don't have a good understanding of how, said Braun. What will that look like, and perhaps most importantly, how will that impact the people in coastal communities who depend on the sea? Climate change, he said, is expected to fundamentally change the status quo for where these species are and how they live. While we don't really understand all the details of what that fundamental change might look like, this study is a good step in the direction of trying to nail down what those changes might be so that we can do something about it, said Braun. The study specifically looked at blue beagle and shortfin mako sharks, albacore, big eye, bluefin, skipjack, and yellowfin tunas, and four billfish species, including sailfish, blue marlin, white marlin, and swordfish. These are a category of ocean fish that NOAA classifies as highly migratory species, Braun said, noting they are typically important, commercially valuable species or species of conservation concern. All of these species are found in New England, some inshore and some offshore, he said. In general, more tropical species such as blue marlin are expected to be more common in our offshore waters as things warm, Braun said. We may see fewer colder water species that we're used to seeing, such as poor beagle sharks. The researchers, Braun said, expect the catch composition and timing of New England fisheries to change as a result of the changing ocean environment. For example, bluefin tuna migrations may not line up with a local prey, or they may spend more time further north in Canadian waters than in the Gulf of Maine, he said. The researchers used 30 years' worth of satellite, oceanographic, and biological data to create species distribution models, 
to get a better understanding of the effect of climate change on the fish species. Doing this kind of work, Braun said, requires a wide range of specific skill sets and expertise, from ocean climate modeling to fisheries science. Even NASA got involved, providing some funding to pull together experts that could use NASA's satellite data to improve our understanding of how climate is and will impact important fisheries species like tunas, sharks, and swordfish, he said. Multiple National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration scientists collaborated on the study as well. We used a model framework to determine the habitat envelope, or environmental preferences for each species, Braun explained, and once we knew the habitat envelope defined by temperature, ocean depth, and other variables, we used ocean climate models to understand how those habitats are expected to change by the end of the century. While the researchers' model framework could not account for the studied species' potential adaptability or thermal tolerance, the results suggest predominant and widespread habitat loss for nearly all of them. In some cases, according to the study, these iconic and economically and ecologically important species could lose upward of 70% of suitable habitat by the end of the century. Many effects of climate-induced changes are already apparent, the study confirmed. Our research demonstrates that climate-driven changes are happening now, not from projections of climate change, but based on observed empirical data from the last two decades, said study co-author Rebecca Lewison, a conservation ecologist who teaches biology at the Coastal and Marine Institute at San Diego State University. So, while our findings do point to larger species shifts in the near term, it also clarifies the substantial changes in species distributions that have already occurred. Another co-author of the study, Toby Curtis, a fishery management specialist in the Atlantic Highly Migratory Species Management Division of NOAA Fisheries, said the research highlights that marine conservation and management efforts need to plan for these ongoing changes. As the oceans continue to warm, fish distributions are shifting poleward, and there are chances there are changes to migration patterns and habitat, he said. To keep up with these changes in the environment, fishing vessels will need to adapt their fishing strategies, likely fishing in different places or at different times of the year to access the fish they're targeting. By using climate models, the researchers are able to project the magnitude of the potential changes and can plan accordingly, Curtis said, noting that NOAA Fisheries already has numerous climate change and ecosystem-based fisheries management initiatives. Braun emphasized that the expected changes in species distribution can have real impact for fishers who make their living from the sea, so adaptive management approaches are essential. Climate absolutely will impact where and when we can catch the fish we rely on for many people's livelihoods, he said. The good news, he said, is that much of the predicted change hasn't happened yet. These predictions can be readily adopted and used by fisheries managers to help fishers and coastal communities adapt to the expected changes in how and when these species are common in our waters. Fisheries management is currently static in that a box is drawn in the ocean and we say no one can fish there. That box may have once protected the species it was trying to protect, such as bluefin tuna, but in a dynamic and changing ocean, it's likely that box does not and will not protect bluefin in the same way that it used to, Braun explained. While he said fisheries can adapt by adopting new management approaches, he stressed we need to start making these changes now. 
We're doing our best to try to figure out what will happen, Braun said, so that people can adapt and so that we can develop climate-resilient or climate-ready management policies. ICE says Brazilian man arrested on vineyard is wanted in Brazil by Zane Razak. A man wanted in Brazil on a criminal charge related to homicide was captured Thursday in Edgartown, according to a U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement statement on Friday. Deportation officers from the agency's Boston-based Fugitive Operations Team, along with U.S. Customs and Border Protection Air and Marine officials and Edgartown police detectives, arrested the 31-year-old Brazilian national. The arrest of this Brazilian non-citizen demonstrates our commitment to prioritizing enforcement and removal efforts against unlawfully present non-citizens, non-citizens who are wanted for crimes in their home countries, said Enforcement and Removal Operations Boston Field Office Director Todd Lyons in the statement. And the statement does not identify the man. Edgartown Police Chief Bruce McNamee was not immediately available Sunday for comment. The man first entered the U.S. without documentation as a minor on December 5, 2007, and was apprehended by Border Patrol, according to the statement. He was ordered removed by a federal immigration judge on June 17, 2008. The man appealed but was ordered to leave January 15, 2009. The man left the U.S. August 14th of 2009, but came back at some unknown time, according to the statement. He will remain in custody pending his removal from the U.S., the agency stated. Officials want answers for how to fix the sewage plant by Paul Gately in Buzzards Bay. This from the Cape and Islands section as we keep it local here. The Bourne Sewer Commission and its contractors are still struggling to come up with answers about what's wrong with the two-year-old $9.7 million sewage treatment plant that keeps going offline. At a September 26th board meeting, engineers for Weston and Sampson, which designed the plant, told the Sewer Commission that the facility would operate for a few days or just a few hours and then shut down. The firm, along with Kubota, which provided manufacturing equipment, is troubleshooting problems this fall. We have a problem with an installation that hasn't worked well since day one, Commission Chair Jared McDonald told representatives of both firms at the meeting. We have to find the root of the problems and figure out how to resolve this. We have some upcoming capital spending discussions about replacing equipment that was outdated before it was installed. Board member Mary Jane Mastrangelo remains troubled about the facility's equipment. Why should we, meaning the town, purchase a duplicate logic system that doesn't work? This is a really serious problem, and I need to have some answers about what the specs were, she said. The treatment facility was approved and constructed on the premise it would be a catalyst, in part, to long-sought Main Street area redevelopment. The Army Corps of Engineers has concluded that a long-proposed sewer connection with 91 units at the Bourne Scenic Park campground can be considered an improvement under the terms of Bourne Recreation Authority's long-term lease of the federal land north of the canal. Authority members and staff on September 13th met with Corps Canal Manager John McPherson and Canal Park Ranger Joseph Mazzola to discuss applying for a village sewer connection. McPherson, according to Authority Chairman, Greg Folino, in a September 23rd email to town administrator Marlene McCollum, said the Corps' review determined the proposal is consistent with and meets the terms and regulations of the authority's lease with the federal agency. 
In a September 24th interview, Authority General Manager Barry Johnson said the Corps' determination doesn't mean Corps approval of a sewer system connection. That has to come from the Corps Real Estate Division in Concord, he said. Questions have arisen, however, about whether the tract where a park tie into the town's sewer system falls within the parameters of a 1984 Intermunicipal Agreement, IMA, for sewage treatment in Wareham. Mastrangelo said the village system has enough sewage capacity to accommodate the park sites, but there remains the issue of whether the commission has the authority to grant the sewer link. I don't think we can approve this request without making sure we're not violating some agreement or contract with Wareham, based on something in 1984. The commission gave Benny Chu, the owner of the Wei Ho restaurant, 300 Main Street in Buzzards Bay, until November 15th to fix the restaurant's problems with its grease traps. The commission's been at odds with Chu for a long time. The restaurant's food license and operations had been placed at risk following inspections by the town health department and engineering office. Representatives of the health, engineering, public works, and plumbing offices have been engaged with Weho issues that have been particularly vexing because grease problems could threaten operations at the new village treatment plant. McDonald said 92% of the tract falls outside the 1984 mapping parameters and the connection issue needs to be vetted out with Wareham sewer commissioners possibly this fall. And McDonald agrees. This issue needs clarity in the very near future. We need to understand if this conforms with IMA guidelines. The other story in the Cape and Islands is more of a a photo review. Take Your Thoughts for a Walk by Steve Heslip. Troubled by repeated weekends of rain and winds with the arrival of fall and shrinking daylight? Throw in TV ads showing two band-aids on the upper arm signaling America it's time for a flu shot and COVID booster both at the same time, and it can be overwhelming. There's a lot to digest starting the 10th month of 2023, never mind the constant white noise of presidential politics. New Yorker staff cartoonist Roz Chaste wonders, I don't know how people live without taking time to let their thoughts run and see where they go. A well-worded way to suggest it's a way overdue for us all to slow down and do a bit of daydreaming. Heading into shorter days, this can mean your thoughts may be running after dark. A simple solution, look up. There's no better place than the beach at night to take your thoughts for a jog, looking at the night sky. As a proud recipient of the Boy Scout Astronomy Merit Badge, I should be able to identify many of the well-known constellations. Time has taken its toll, and my only claim to fame now is finding the Big Dipper and the North Star. When winter arrives, I can still spot Orion's belt and his sword looking south. Yes, there are phone apps one can point in any direction for a quick ID, but if I'm taking my thoughts for a walk and letting them wander on a starlit night, less is more. There's plenty of action to see up there in the night sky. At a Columbus Day weekend bonfire at Sandy Neck many years ago, all eyes were on the fire and kids toasting marshmallows until someone alerted us to look up and the northern lights were dancing overhead. This year on Labor Day, there was a similar scene with a more modern twist marching across the southern sky, a string of lights in formation. A quick Google search revealed it was Elon Musk's Starlink satellites crossing overhead. There's not much that can be done about coastal storms heading our way, but when the skies do clear above the autumnal skies, look up and let your mind go for a long run in the dark. 
An important story to note, emergency alert test scheduled. Cell phones, TVs, and radios are going to ring on Wednesday by Elizabeth Weiss and Amaris Encinas of USA Today. Get ready to not freak out. On Wednesday, October 4th at 2.20 p.m. Eastern Time, every TV, radio, and cell phone in the United States should blare out the distinctive, jarring, electronic warning tone of an emergency alert. Again, Wednesday, October 4th, this coming Wednesday at 2.20, every TV, radio, and cell phone will blare out the jarring warning tone of an emergency alert. It's a test. It's only a test. Officially, the trial is called the Nationwide Emergency Alert Test. You know it's a test and not an actual emergency because it's accompanied by an explanation of the test. No, it's not a national conspiracy to infect people with nanoparticles. Mostly the test is an important way to make sure that if something really bad and really big happens, Americans can be warned quickly. And here's what to know. The national test consists of two parts, which occur in conjunction with one another, in order to test the emergency alert system and the wireless emergency alerts, according to FEMA. The WEA will be directed to all cell phones, while the EAS will notify all radio and television broadcasters, cable systems, satellite radio and television providers, and wireline video providers. The message will be heard and seen pretty much everywhere. It's being conducted with the participation of radio and television broadcasters, cable systems, satellite radio companies, and cell phone networks. All across the U.S., broadcast TV shows and radio will be interrupted as the emergency message goes out. And that message will say, this is a nationwide test of the emergency alert system issued by the Federal Emergency Management Agency covering the United States from 1420 to 1450 hours Eastern Time. This is only a test. No action is required by the public. Cell phones will get the warning as a tone, a vibration, and a text message. This is a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. No action is needed. Phones on which the main menu is set to Spanish will see Esta es una prueba del Sistema Nacional de Alerta de Emergencia. No se necesita, no se necesita acción. I apologize, I took French in high school. The alert will begin on Wednesday, October 4th, at the same moment across every time zone in the country. 2.20 p.m. Eastern Time, 1.20 p.m. Central Time, 12.20 Mountain Time, 11.20 Pacific, 10.20 Atlanta, ADT and 820 HST, which I assume is Hawaiian Standard Time. I don't know. The test is scheduled to last approximately one minute and only go out once. There'll be no repeats. Only cell phones that are turned on will receive the message. If your phone's on but the sound and vibration features are turned off, you'll still get the message. If your phone is set to Wi-Fi or airplane mode, it won't receive the alert because the message goes out over the cellular broadcast system. The type of noise and general volume of the alert is similar to that of an amber alert or warnings issued by the National Weather Service in case of severe weather. The WEA alert, which will be sent to all cellular devices, will be accompanied by a unique tone and vibration to make sure that the alerts will be available to the public, including people with disabilities, according to FEMA. It's against federal law to play the emergency warning attention signal 
or a recording of it in any circumstance other than an actual emergency or authorized test. In 2021, a proposed fine of $20,000 was levied against the Doug Bashman radio show for playing the emergency alert system attention signal in the absence of any actual emergency. Playing the tone when there isn't a real emergency or test could lead to alert fatigue, where the public becomes desensitized to the alerts and stops paying attention to them, the FCC said in a statement about the fine. All we can offer is the official description of the warning tone. The audio attention signal must have a temporal pattern of one long tone of two seconds, followed by two short tones of one second each, with a half-second interval between each tone. And the entire sequence must be repeated twice with a half-second interval between each repetition. Federal emergency management coordinators need to make sure the national alert system is still an effective way to warn Americans about emergencies, natural catastrophes, attacks, and accidents at the national level. The wireless emergency management coordinators goes out over the internet and a backup through public broadcasting system stations. It originated at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, working with the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. Could the test harm people with hearing aids? Many people with hearing aids now have them connected to their cell phones so that the audio from phone calls come into their hearing aids via Bluetooth. There have been some online pairings and postings suggesting the loud warning tone could be harmful. However, it's not really a concern, said Deanne Rudin, a doctor of audiology at the Longmont Hearing and Tinnitus Center in Longmont, Colorado. There are conspiracy theories on social media suggesting that the warning tone will somehow turn on technology that's been implanted in Americans' bodies, putting them under some sort of control. Well, um, these claims are untrue. The test can't harm people, and it's only to verify the national alert system is working. Don't believe nonsense on the internet about being placed under control because of something in your body. This is ridiculous, people. Some top-line sports news. Patriots lost. The U.S. lost in the Ryder Cup. And it was a very ugly day for, uh, for New England football. And a uh, terribly sad story. Tim Wakefield died of a brain tumor over the weekend. Tim Wakefield, a great uh, knuckleball pitcher with the Red Sox, but great because he was a good person. He would go to Dana-Farber with no press, no buzz around him, just go in and visit constantly. He made trips to people's homes. He was a make-a-wish guy for many, many people. He was a very, very good human being and a very good athlete. So that's some of the sports news over the weekend. Uh, probably the biggest news, though, other than Bill Belichick's biggest loss in his career, is the point guard Drew Holiday being sent to the Celtics in trade for Robbie Williams and Malcolm uh, Brogdon. So that's basically what's going on in big-time sports. It's a family thing at St. John Paul II, girls' soccer. That's what the headline says. This is written by Andre Sims. St. John Paul II girls soccer team won its third consecutive game, beating the Monomoy Sharks 4-1 Saturday, improving to 4-2-1 on the year. The heart of the win were two sisters, Ella and Addison Shaney. 
Together, the pair represent the past, present, and future of the program and had their collective footprints all over the win. Let's start with Ella Cheney. She's a captain and the only senior on this year's Lions team. The senior is one part past, as she's been a standout for years, and one part present, leading this year's team from her position in central midfield. Her leadership on the field is apparent. From the center of the park, Ella Cheney acts as the pivot that links the Lions' back line with a myriad of attacking options in front of her. Her head coach, Larry Palmer, says she sets the tone for the Lions. Ella is extremely adept at reading the field and extremely professional at managing the situation on the field, Palmer said. In Saturday's win over the Sharks, Ella Cheney pulled the strings with her passing, keeping her team clicking through the gears throughout the match. She had the assist on each of the Lions' first two goals, both coming on nearly identical lofted passes over the Monomoy backline. The lion at the end of both of those passes was her younger sister, Addie. Just an eighth grader, Addison Cheney represents the future of the Lions, but make no mistake, she's very much a part of St. John Paul II's present. She clinically finished her first two chances, hit the frame of the goal twice, one of which resulted in a rebound goal for sophomore Reagan Dillon, and calmly completed her hat trick in the second half. Her three-goal haul brings her season total to 14 through seven games, and her sister Ella said after the game her younger sister's work ethic sets her apart. She's a really hard worker in and out of practice, Ella Cheney said. When she's not at practice, we go outside, we practice together, and we train a lot. Palmer called Addie Cheney a pure striker and said even in eighth grade she had intangibles that set her apart. Fast and fearless was how Palmer described the younger Cheney. The ability to maneuver the ball in space, and that's something that I think translates regardless of age. The two goals the sisters linked up for in the first half were mirror images of each other. Both were displays of the connection the two share, something that's been developing their whole lives. She, meaning Ella, has that innate connection that she works on at home, and she's had her whole life with Addie. This is sort of a dream to be able to play together this season, and they're making the most of it. Addie Shaney isn't lucking her way into these goals. They've come because Lions play front foot soccer and have drilled in passing patterns and runs off of the passes. Whether she or her teammates, Palmer knows this team will create chances and trusts them to play aggressively. He also says he empowers his team to play freely on the pitch. They have freedom to express themselves to be the best versions of themselves on the field without any fear of repercussions if it doesn't work out. So, they have the confidence to try things, Palmer said. Good luck to the Cheney girls. Normally at this time, we would move to a different kind of local news, the obituaries, death notices, and memorials. In today's Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, October 2nd of 2023, there are no obituaries. So we will move on from the local news, which we've completed, to national news. Shutdown averted. Biden signs funding bill Saturday before midnight deadline. By Lisa Mascaro, Kevin Frecking, and Stephen Groves of the Associated Press in Washington. The threat of a federal government shutdown suddenly lifted late Saturday as President Joe Biden signed a temporary funding bill to keep agencies open with little time to spare after Congress rushed to approve the bipartisan deal. The package drops aid to Ukraine, a White House priority opposed by a growing number of GOP lawmakers, but increases federal disaster assistance by $16 billion, meeting Biden's full request. The bill funds the government until November 17th. 
After chaotic days of turmoil in the House, Speaker Kevin McCarthy abruptly abandoned demands for steep spending cuts from his right flank and instead relied on Democrats to pass the bill, at risk to his own job. The Senate followed with final passage, closing a whirlwind day at the Capitol. Biden said the United States cannot under any circumstances allow American support for Ukraine to be interrupted and expected McCarthy will keep his commitment to the people of Ukraine and secure passage of the support needed to help Ukraine at this critical moment. It's been a sudden head-spinning turn of events in Congress ahead of the midnight funding deadline after grueling days in the House pushed the government to the brink of a disruptive federal shutdown. The outcome ends for now the threat of a shutdown, but the reprieve may be short-lived. Congress will again need to fund the government in coming weeks, risking a crisis as views are hardening, particularly among the right-flank lawmakers whose demands were ultimately swept aside this time in favor of a more bipartisan approach. We're going to do our job, McCarthy, a Republican from California, said before the House vote. We're going to be the adults in the room, and we're going to keep government open. If no deal was in place before Sunday, federal workers would have faced furloughs, More than 2 million active duty and reserve military troops would have had to work without pay and programs and services that Americans rely on from coast to coast would have begun to face shutdown disruptions. It's been a day full of twists and turns, but the American people can breathe a sigh of relief. There'll be no government shutdown, said Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York. The package funds government at current 2023 levels until mid-November and also extends other provisions included for the Federal Aviation Administration. The package was approved by the House 335 to 91, with most Republicans and almost all Democrats supporting it. Senate passage came by an 88 to 9 vote. But the loss of Ukraine aid was devastating for lawmakers of both parties vowing to support President Volodymyr Zelensky after his recent Washington visit. The Senate bill included $6 billion for Ukraine. Both chambers came to a standstill Saturday as lawmakers assessed their options. The American people deserve better, said House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries of New York, warning in a lengthy floor speech that extreme Republicans were risking a shutdown. For the House package to be approved, McCarthy was forced to rely on Democrats because the Speaker's hard right flank has said it will oppose any short-term funding measure, denying him the votes needed from his slim majority. It's a move that's sure to intensify calls for his ouster. After leaving the conservative holdouts behind, McCarthy's almost certain to be facing a motion to try to remove him from office, though it is not at all certain there would be enough votes to topple the Speaker. Most Republicans voted for the package Saturday, while 90 opposed. If somebody wants to remove me because I want to be the adult in the room, go ahead and try, McCarthy said of the threat to oust him. But I think this country is too important. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who's championed Ukraine aid despite resistance from his own ranks, is expected to keep pursuing U.S. support for Kyiv in the fight against Russia. I've agreed to keep fighting for more economic and security aid for Ukraine. McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, said before the vote. Late at night, the Senate stalled when Senator Michael Bennett, a Democrat from Colorado, held up the vote, seeking assurances Ukraine funds would be reconsidered. I know important moments are like this for the United States to lead the rest of the world, Bennett said, noting his mother was born in Poland in 1938 and survived the Holocaust. 
The House's quick pivot comes after the collapse Friday of McCarthy's earlier plan to pass a Republican-only bill with steep spending cuts up to 30 percent to most government agencies and strict border provisions that the White House and Democrats rejected as too extreme. A faction of 21 hard-right Republican holdouts opposed it. Abortion and Gun Cases on the High Court Docket in Their New Term by Mark Sherman in Washington. The Supreme Court is returning to a new term to take up some familiar topics, guns and abortion, and concerns about ethics swirling around the justices. The year will also have a heavy focus on social media and how free speech protections apply online. A big unknown is whether the court will be asked to weigh in on any aspect of the criminal cases against former President Donald Trump and others, or efforts in some states to keep the Republican off the 2024 presidential ballot because of his role in trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election that he lost to Democrat Joe Biden. Lower profile but vitally important, several cases in the term that begin Monday ask the justices to constrict the power of regulatory agencies. I can't remember a term where the court was poised to say so much about the power of federal administrative agencies, said Jeffrey Wall, who served as the deputy solicitor general in the Trump administration. One of those cases, to be argued on Tuesday, threatens the ability of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to function. Unlike most agencies, the Bureau is not dependent on annual appropriations from Congress. Instead, it gets its funding directly from the Federal Reserve. The idea when the agency was created following the recession in 2007-2008 was to shield it from politics. But the Federal Appeals Court in New Orleans struck down the funding mechanism. The ruling would cause profound disruption by calling into question virtually every action the CFPB has taken since its creation the Biden administration said in a court filing. The same federal appeals court also produced the ruling that struck down a federal law that aims to keep guns away from people facing domestic violence restraining orders from having firearms. The three-judge panel of the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals said its decision was compelled by the Supreme Court's 2022 ruling expanding gun rights and directing judges to evaluate restrictions based on history and tradition. Judges also have invalidated other long-standing gun control laws. The justices will hear the Texas case in November in what's their first chance to elaborate on the meaning of that decision in the earlier case, which has come to be known as Bruin. The abortion case likely to be heard by the justices also would be the court's first word on the topic since it reversed Roe v. Wade's right to abortion. The new case stems from a ruling, also by the Fifth Circuit, to limit the availability of mifepristone, a medication used in the most common method of abortion in the United States. The administration already won an order from a high court blocking from the high court blocking the appellate ruling while the case continues. The justices could decide later in the fall to take up the mifepristone case this term. The assortment of cases from the Fifth Circuit could offer Chief Justice John Roberts more opportunities to forge alliances in major cases that cross ideological lines. In those cases, the conservative-dominated appeals court, which includes six Trump appointees, took aggressive legal positions, said Irv Gornstein, executive director of the Georgetown Law School's Supreme Court Institute. The Fifth Circuit is ready to adopt the politically most conservative position on almost any issue, 
no matter how implausible or how much defiling of precedent it takes. The three Supreme Court justices appointed by Trump, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, have been together in the majority of some of the biggest cases in the past two years, including guns, abortion, and ending affirmative action in college emissions. But in some important cases last term, the court split in unusual ways. The most notable of those, Kavanaugh joined with Roberts and the court's three liberal justices to rule that Alabama hadn't done enough to reflect the political power of black voters in its congressional redistricting. Roberts, Kavanaugh, this time joined by Barrett, also were in the majority with the liberal justices in a case that rejected a conservative legal effort to cut out state courts from oversight of elections for Congress and president. Those outcomes have yet to do much to ameliorate the court's image in the public's mind. The most recent Gallup poll released last week found Americans' approval of and trust in the court hovering near record lows. It's not clear whether those numbers would improve if the court were to adopt a code of conduct. Several justices have publicly recognized the ethics issues spurred by a series of stories questioning some of their practices. Many of those stories focused on Justice Clarence Thomas and his failure to disclose travel and other financial ties with wealthy conservative donors, including Harlan Crow and the Koch brothers. But Justices Samuel Alito and Sonia Sotomayor have also been under scrutiny. Behind the scenes, the justices are talking about an ethics code, and Kavanaugh has said he's hopeful the court would soon take concrete steps. Justice Elena Kagan, who backs a high court code of ethics, said in an appearance at the University of Notre Dame that her colleagues are trying to work through their differences. There are, you know, totally good faith disagreements or concerns, if you will. There are some things to be worked out. I hope we can get them worked out. Kagan said. The next headline, Colorado gun buy wait period and lawsuit path take effect. Joins at least 10 other states with restrictions by Jesse Bedane in Denver. Now that Colorado gun control laws took effect on Sunday, purchasing a firearm requires a three-day waiting period meant to curtail suicide attempts and shootings, and gun violence victims now have an easier path toward filing lawsuits against the firearm industry. The laws, which were pushed through Colorado's Democratic-controlled legislature this year, came as violent crime and mass shootings surge nationwide, including last year's bloodshed at an LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs where a gunman killed five people and wounded 17 others. The new laws edge the once-purpled Colorado nearer the Democratic bastions of California and New York. But gun groups have vowed to challenge the restrictions in court, encouraged by a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that expanded gun rights last year. The Colorado laws were spurred by waves of protests over gun violence this year. Students flooded the Colorado Capitol's halls in March after a high school student was shot and killed just outside their campus. And later that month, teachers marched into the House and Senate chambers after a student shot and wounded two school administrators in Denver. The state now joins at least 10 others by enacting a waiting period. Democratic State Representative Judy Amabile One of the bill's sponsors said she's experienced firsthand the benefits of a buffer between buying and receiving a gun. Her son had sought a firearm she believed he was planning to use on himself, but his background check had been delayed. I'm forever grateful he didn't have instant access to a firearm that day, she said in a news release. 
Taylor Rhodes, executive director of Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, said that when the waiting period takes effect on Sunday, he'll file a lawsuit. We aren't talking about things that are privileges, we're talking about constitutionally guaranteed freedoms, said Rhodes. He added that if someone needs to protect themselves from a stalker, for example, waiting three days might not cut it. A second law in Colorado would roll back some long-held legal protections for gun manufacturers and dealers, partly by making the industry more accountable to consumer protection laws. Similar to legislation that was passed in California, New York, Delaware, and New Jersey, Colorado's new law would make it easier for victims of gun violence to file civil suits partly around how companies market their products, such as one lodged against Remington in 2015. The National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is a gun advocacy group which has filed lawsuits against similar laws in other states, including California, is expected to take legal action in Colorado. Mark Oliva, managing director of the foundation, has told the Associated Press's Colorado's law would be ripe for a legal challenge. Two GOP campaigns are facing Iowa by Thomas Beaumont of the Associated Press in Des Moines. Having stood out in two presidential debates, Nikki Haley has booked her largest venue in Iowa since launching her campaign. She's hoping to fill a 600-person hall in a western Des Moines suburb on Saturday. That'd be a huge number for most of her rivals. It's also less than the smallest crowds, usually drawn by Donald Trump, who's dominating the Republican field for the 2024 Iowa caucuses less than four months away. The former president will be in rural southeast Iowa the following day to headline an organizing event. Aides were expecting at least a 1,000 to attend. In essence, there are two Iowa campaigns underway. Trump is holding fewer, bigger events that demonstrate the strength of his organization and grip on GOP base voters, while his rivals attend the state's traditional candidate forums and meet and greets, searching for ways to cut into his lead or consolidate second place. While things could change before the January 15th caucuses, some campaigns are trying to shift expectations. They're hoping a close runner-up to Trump in Iowa, or even someone who falls well short of Trump but pulls away from other rivals, could begin consolidating support and force others out. What's crystal clear to me is that until there's a winnowing event, you're never going to get to the head-to-head that it would require to have somebody other than Trump win the nomination, said Gentry Collins, who managed Mitt Romney's campaign for the 2008 caucuses. That winnowing starts in Iowa, and it changes the dynamics of the race. Here's a look at the campaigns working hardest in Iowa to catch Trump. Ron DeSantis. Campaign overspending and donor jitters prompted the Florida governor to shake up his organization and narrow a broad national approach to one increasingly focused on Iowa. His national support has slipped substantially from its high point earlier this year. DeSantis hired David Polyansky as a senior deputy campaign manager in August. Polyansky's a top strategist with Iowa chops from past presidential campaigns. Speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss internal strategy, two DeSantis advisors suggest he could survive three second-place finishes in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina and try to force a head-to-head matchup with Trump ahead of March's Super Tuesday slate of primaries. DeSantis has already visited two-thirds of Iowa's counties, Polyansky said in an interview. The candidate pledged earlier this year to visit all 99, a goal that could not that could net extra support and allow him to shore up more populous counties during the stretch. 
Knocking out a majority of our 99-county swing this early, before the caucus campaigning heats up even further, gives us the freedom down the stretch to travel where we want to go and when we want to go in Iowa, New Hampshire, and beyond, Polyansky said. Nikki Haley. Haley's team pumped up expectations going into Wednesday's second debate and hopes her energetic performance, including several tussles with rivals, translates to a rise in polls. She impressed Nicole Schlinger, an Iowa Republican campaign phone and text vendor who hasn't committed to a 24 candidate. Nikki showing she can be strong and assertive and put these guys back on their heels, said Schlinger, who's not committed in the 24 race. Toiling before smaller crowds throughout the spring and summer, Haley, who's the former U.N. ambassador and governor of South Carolina, drew a noticeably more robust 400 to stops in rural eastern Iowa this month. She took the wheel of a combine among amber rows of corn. She's recently signed noteworthy Iowa GOP talent, including Troy Bishop, who was Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley's organizational director. And she's lured some donors away from DeSantis, including billionaire former Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner. Now the super PAC supporting her is spending more on ads in Iowa. Tim Scott. Scott was striding toward the midway at the Iowa State Fair this summer when a man approached from behind to tell him, I've seen your ads. He wasn't alone. Scott's campaign and the super PAC supporting him have combined to spend roughly $10 million in advertising this year, introducing Scott to Iowans. About a quarter of all GOP caucus campaign and super PAC ad spending, according to Ad Impact. The South Carolina Senator's team argues Iowans are more familiar with him through advertising and ready to see him emerge in the close-up settings that are traditionally critical here. He has started criticizing his rivals more, going after Trump, DeSantis, and Haley for refusing to push for a federal abortion ban. His more aggressive posture was on display during the Wednesday debate in California when he criticized a proposal by Haley to increase the gas tax. I think I come across as a nice guy. I will say, though, that I'm not an angry guy, Scott told one Iowa audience after being asked if he was tough enough to confront Russia. I think we sometimes confuse anger with strength. Vivek Ramaswamy Long before he grabbed attention at the first debate, Ramaswamy was working hard in Iowa. The 38-year-old entrepreneur has traveled the state more than any candidate, holding nearly 70 campaign events. He's gotten buzz for his youth and his charisma, his lack of political background, and a brashness that reminds some people of Trump. Some Iowans have also voiced unfavorable impressions sparked by what some see as foreign policy naivete and lack of experience. Ramaswamy's Iowa team is small, led by outspoken social conservative former state senator Jake Chapman and former Iowa Secretary of State Matt Schultz. Ramaswamy, who's Hindu and the son of Indian immigrants, always cites what he calls his lists of truths, the first of which is, God is real. Evangelical Christians are critical in Iowa. And Mike Pence. For a former vice president so closely identified with evangelical Christians, it would seem Pence would have a leg up. Yet Pence faces distinct challenges. Among the most stubborn is the lingering and false perception that Pence could have refused to certify the 2020 election. A man in the state fair crowd this summer confronted Pence and asked him, Why did you commit treason? Pence patiently walked through the constitutional requirements of the vice president during the certification process. 
Even though my former running mate and his outside lawyers told me that authority was there, I knew it never was, Pence told the crowd. I will always believe by God's grace I did my duty that day. Though the now well-rehearsed answer sparks respectful applause, Pence faces stubbornly high unfavorable ratings in Iowa among likely GOP caucus-goers. Still, Pence, who had seven events planned in Iowa over the coming days, was on track to top 60 campaign stops by the end of this week, second only to Ramaswamy. Deadly Illinois crash under investigation. Accident kills five people in prompts evacuation after toxic chemical leak by John O'Connor and Colleen Slavin in Springfield, Illinois. Authorities resumed their investigation Sunday of a central Illinois truck crash that killed five people, injured five others, and prompted an evacuation for hundreds of residents after a toxic chemical leak. The tanker truck, which was carrying caustic anhydrous ammonia, was drained and moved to a secure location for a National Transportation Safety Board investigation, authorities said late on Saturday as residents were allowed to return to their homes in the Tutopolis area. NTSB authorities planned a news conference Sunday. Testing has indicated that the danger from the anhydrous ammonia has dissipated, Tutopolis Assistant Fire Chief Joe Holomy said late Saturday. A semi-truck carrying caustic anhydrous ammonia toppled about 9.25 p.m. Friday in Tutopolis, spilling more than half of its 7,500-gallon load, according to the Illinois EPA. Tutopolis is about 110 miles northeast of St. Louis. Effingham County Coroner Kim Rhodes said the five dead included three from the same family, one adult and two children under 12. The other two were adult motorists from out of state, Rhodes said. Additionally, five people were airlifted to hospitals and their conditions were unknown. Names of the victims weren't released, nor would authorities discuss causes of death. About 500 residents within a one-mile radius of the crash were evacuated after the accident, including northeastern parts of Tutopolis. Emergency crews worked overnight after the accident on Friday, trying to control the plume from the leak, struggling to get near the crash site. We have a lot of brave firemen, EMT, hazmat specialists, police officers that are all working on this scene as we speak, Effingham County Sheriff Paul Kuhn said at a Saturday morning news conference. Private and federal environmental contractors were summoned to recommend a cleanup procedure in Tutopolis, a town of 1,600 people. The accident caused a large plume, cloud of anhydrous ammonia on the roadway that caused terribly dangerous air conditions in the northeast area of Tutopolis, and because of these conditions, the emergency responders had to wait. They had to mitigate the conditions before they could really get to work on it, and it was a fairly large area. Although not strong, crew working overnight struggled against shifting wind. The wind changed three or four different times on us, said Tim McMahon, who's chief of the Tutopolis Fire Protection District. That's another reason we got crews out in different places, reporting back on which way the wind's going. Traffic, including the tanker, was pushed onto US-40, which bisects Tutopolis, earlier Friday because of another truck crash on Interstate 70. Philip Hartke, 75 years old, who lives in Tutopolis but farms with his son outside of town, said US-40 was jammed after the I-70 closure. Hartke finished harvesting corn around 9.30 p.m. And driving home, as he neared the center of town, he could smell anhydrous ammonia. When he reached US-40, emergency vehicles swarmed the area. 
Firefighters advised us right there, evacuate to the west, Hartke said. He estimated 85% of Tutopolis was subject to the evacuation. He and his wife were staying with his son. Such familial ties should serve most evacuees well. T-Town's a tight-knit community, Hartke said. Many people have sons and daughters, aunts and uncles within five or six miles of town. Anhydrous ammonia is used by farmers to add nitrogen fertilizer to the soil and as a refrigerant in the cooling systems of large buildings such as warehouses and factories. According to the American Chemical Society, it's carried around the U.S. by pipeline, trucks, and trains. In 2019, dozens of people were sickened in suburban Chicago after the valves were left open on tanks of anhydrous ammonia being transported from a farm in Wisconsin to one in Illinois, creating a toxic gas cloud. Seven people were initially hospitalized in critical condition after a leaking anhydrous ammonia tank pulled by a tractor released the plume over Beach Park. And in 2002, a train derailment released anhydrous ammonia in Minot, North Dakota, killing a man, and hundreds of other people reported injuries, including burns and breathing problems. It's terrible. It's bad stuff if you're involved in breathing it, especially because it gets in your airways, in your lungs, and it burns, Kuhn said. In addition to having a commercial driver's license, the person behind the wheel of a toxic substance tanker must study further and successfully complete a test for hazardous material endorsement, said Don Schaefer, CEO of the Midwest Truckers Association. Once you get that endorsement, there are no restrictions, unless otherwise posted, on hauling hazardous materials on a public highway, Schaefer said. But you're subject to higher scrutiny. We will close out our reading today with a little bit of advice from Carolyn Hacks. Ask Carolyn. Dear Carolyn, my brother's wife isn't a bad person, but she's really insecure and sensitive to the point that it's really hard to be myself around her. My husband and parents feel the same way. Some examples. I once referred to a waitress. I got text messages for hours that night telling me I was horribly sexist for not using the term server instead. I'm a woman, if that matters. I apologized profusely for the sake of keeping the peace, but the texts didn't stop. I ended up muting my phone. Another time, she got upset that my brother didn't like some song on the radio that she liked. More recently, on a family vacation with our kids, I teased my brother in passing with a childhood nickname. He laughed and we moved on. But she was upset because she thought I was making fun of him, was upset my brother didn't agree, and stormed out of the condo we were renting and wandered around by herself. I never know what's going to set her off and ruin the night, and it happens frequently enough that my parents' husband and I are always nervous about saying something she'll find offensive. Sort of over walking on eggshells around her, but if I upset her, my parents will be mad at me for not making an effort. My brother and I used to be very close, but have drifted apart lately because we can't really talk about anything substantive. He usually brings her everywhere. Do I have any options other than just avoiding her or staying silent when I'm near her? Signed, Family. It must feel impossible to be yourself around her, but that's exactly who you need to be. Not the one who wants to say, ah, whenever this happens, but the one who isn't reacting. For example, when you get the server text, don't apologize profusely for the sake of keeping the peace. That's not being true to yourself. Instead, ignore the text or reply, oh, right, thanks. Or hit the magic conversation ending, thumbs up. Then no further engagement. When she's upset about a song or nickname or whatever, try a non-sarcastic thanks for letting us know and change the subject. When she storms out, let her resume your vacation in progress. And when she flips, you gently put the lid back on. And with that good advice, 
We have come to the end of our reading of today's Cape Cod Times, dated Monday, October 2nd of 2023. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other. Remember our vets. Bye for now.